Our sermon today is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. This is the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thus says the Lord. So, before we begin uh, the sermon, let me just voice out that there is, I think, and I've seen, a tendency to preach this passage in such a way that is disconnected from Paul's overall purpose, and therefore misunderstood. This passage has often been preached in such a way to make it sound like Paul's main purpose here is to discriminate specifically against people who are SSA or same-sex attracted. But that's not true. Yes, Paul does address the issue, and we'll get to that later, but the reason as to why he wrote this passage is not just to hone in on a specific group of people or on a specific issue. Why did Paul write this part of Romans? Well, we have to connect it to the overall context of chapter 1, even to chapter 3. Remember in verses 16 to 17, last week, we heard Paul just got done making this huge claim that we can all be saved only by faith in Christ, that we all uh, need the gospel. We cannot earn our own salvation. Everyone needs the forgiveness that Jesus offers on the cross. That's verses 16 to 17. And now, verse 18 onwards, Paul is making a case for that claim that he made. In verse 16 to 17, Paul says, everyone needs the gospel. 
why, in verse 18, Paul starts off with saying, for, or because, see the connection there? For, everyone needs a gospel, for, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against who? Just a particular group of people with a particular sexual orientation? No. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all. Whether you're rich or poor or heterosexual or homosexual, it doesn't matter. All, Paul says, are in need of forgiveness. See, the gospel offends, yes, but it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't segregate. Rosaria Butterfield, who's a Christian scholar and an author who struggles with same-sex attraction, said, it was this very realization of the gospel that became a huge stepping stone for her to then believe in Christianity. She said, and I quote, I came to realize that the Bible doesn't condemn some people because they are gay, but condemns everyone because we are proud. She said she thought the Bible's concept of sin was really just applied cultural phobia. But then she came to realize that that's not at all the case. And she continues to say, it was easier to fight against the Bible when it seemed to be challenging just me. But now that it's challenging everyone, it's, it's kind of a different foe. It's a different kind of enemy. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to get at. This is what he's trying to prove from verses 18 to 32, that everyone, not just certain kinds of people, everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs the gospel. Why? Because we're all guilty of what? Well, let's get to the passage. We're all guilty, Paul says, of one, suppressing God's authority, two, elevating sexual identity, and three, continual self-prioritization. Let me read that again. We're guilty of suppressing God's authority, elevating sexual identity, and continual self-prioritization. Okay? First point. We're all guilty of suppressing God's authority. So, as a pastor and perhaps as a Christian, many of you have heard this question asked a lot. Okay, people say, I get how those who have heard about Christ, I get how people who have grown up in the church and heard about Christianity, if they reject Christianity, I I can see how they're guilty and how they can be held accountable for it. That makes sense. But what about people who's never heard about Christ? What about the people who are out in the island somewhere who's never heard about the Bible, never heard about Christianity? Can they still be held accountable? And Paul here is saying, surprisingly, yes, they can. And, And... our natural response to that is, why, right? How can someone be held accountable to God when they're ignorant of God? And, and Paul responds here by saying, because they're not actually ignorant of God at all. They know God exists. L- look at verse 18 with me. Now, I know it's a nuanced argument. We'll, we'll get to it. But look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul's claiming here that no one is ignorant of God. We all know that he exists. We just suppress the knowledge. What does that mean? Okay, so the apartment that I'm currently living in has a pool. And during quarantine, I've been swimming a lot uh, with the kids. Liam, my two-year-old, his current favorite game right now these days in the pool is to take a rubber ball and submerge it underwater and say, Manabola, which, which means where's the ball in, in Indonesian, right? Pretending like it's not there. Because for a moment, while the ball is being submerged or suppressed underwater, it seems like it's not there. That's what Paul says that we do to God. Everyone knows he's there, but, but we just suppress, we submerge the knowledge of him. But you know what happens when you submerge a ball in a pool like that? 
after a while, you can't suppress it anymore. After a while, eventually, it's going to pop up, right? And in a similar way, our knowledge of God won't stay submerged. Every now and then, I want to propose to you, no matter how hard we try, God pops out of water. <laughs> and I want to present to you that that happens more often than we realize in our everyday lives. One example of when the suppressed knowledge of God pops up is when we hold other people to a moral standard. Whenever we hold somebody else to a moral standard, the knowledge of God pops up. What do I mean? Elena, my four-year-old daughter, started to learn these days how to lie just a little bit, right? So, for example, if she wants a snack or a treat um, and I say no, she would then go to Tatiana, my wife, and ask her, Mommy, uh, Daddy said I can have a treat. And she would lie about what I said about her not having a treat. And, you know, of course, I'd sit her down and I'll tell her, Elena, you, sh you shouldn't lie. Lying is wrong. Now, what if she asks me, why not? Says who? At this point, see, unless I have an ultimate authority of ethics that is beyond me that says lying is wrong, all I can say is, well, lying is wrong, says me. Lying is wrong because I say it's wrong or because the majority of people think it's wrong. All I can say is it's wrong because I feel like it's wrong or because we feel like it's wrong. Because without the existence of an objective and ultimate moral authority, I can't go all the way to say that it is wrong. You see, in order to make that universal moral claim, I have to assume that a universal moral authority exists. And whenever I appeal to this ultimate moral authority, God pops out of the water and it shows that his, his existence to me has actually been plain all along. I've assumed that he existed all along. And the reason why I don't acknowledge it is because I've been suppressing that knowledge. Now, I know that that does sound like a silly example, but I think what, what we often don't realize is that whole societies depend upon this assumption that an objective moral standard of right and wrong exists or else society won't function. That's what Paul means in verses 19 to 21. The knowledge of God is plain to everyone through creation. Life would simply be unlivable. No one would have moral obligations. Societies can't function unless deep inside we know that an ultimate moral standard existed. Let's think about it further. If no ultimate authority for ethical norms exist, our justice system can't operate. What's the judge going to say? I feel like you're wrong. Our desire for equality will have no basis. What can you say? Uh, I, we feel like racism is wrong. Relationships will have no foundation. What can you say? I feel like you shouldn't have cheated on me. See, the only reason why a judge can say to someone that they are guilty, the only reason why we as a society can say racism is wrong is because we assume that there is a universal objective standard of right and wrong that goes beyond us and our feelings and our opinions and the majority vote of our country. Without the ultimate authority for morality, all we can get to is I feel like it's right and wrong or we feel like it's right or wrong. For a society to function at all, we need to be able to say that it is right or wrong. Okay, so where does this ultimate authority for ethics come from? Thin air? The impersonal universe? That can't be, because ethical norms can only come from a personal being. Impersonal beings like rocks, trees, and dirt don't have ethical norms. Okay, 
So then who is this ultimate personal being that everyone just assumes exists, that everyone appeals to so plainly in their everyday lives? Why do we think we assume we can just appeal to that? Could it be because deep inside we actually know that God exists? We try to suppress the knowledge of God, but yet whenever uh, we hold somebody to an objective moral standard, God pops out of the water. It is the only reason why when your business partner breaks your agreement and, and, uh, and, and cheats on you, you can say more than just, I feel like that's unfair, but you can actually say that is unfair and hold them accountable for their actions. It's the only reason why when women get harassed in the workplace, you can say more than just, oh, our culture at this time feels like that's wrong, but you can actually say it is wrong, regardless of what era we live in. It is why when systemic racism occurs in your country, you can do more than just say, I feel like black lives matter, or the majority of people here feel like black lives matter, but you can say with conviction that black lives actually matter. Because regardless of how I or anyone else feels about it, it's objectively true. There's an ethical norm that transcends all of us. Anytime we uphold society to a moral standard of equality or to an ethical obligation of goodness or fairness or justice, which we do every day, we assume that an ultimate ethical norm exists. And when we do that, the ball pops out of the water and we are brought face to face with the divine in which we so adamantly suppress. A.N. Wilson a British poet and scholar who was an atheist, is an atheist, um, wrote, uh, sorry, he was an atheist, he's Christian now, he wrote terrible reviews uh, about people like C.S. Lewis, he actually at one point wrote articles against Jesus and Paul, hated Christianity, was an Adam and atheist. He published an article in a British newspaper in Easter 2009 entitled, I Have Embraced Christianity. And it absolutely shocked everybody. And in this article, this is what he said. Most public voices have accepted the idea that only stupid people believe in Christianity. As a matter of fact, it's materialist atheism that is not merely an erred creed, but is totally irrational. For materialist atheism says we are just a collection of chemicals, and therefore it has no answer whatsoever to the question as to how we are capable of love, justice, heroism, and poetry, if we are simply animated pieces of meat. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, that the knowledge of God is plain. It pops up everywhere, all the time. People just assume it. Every day, it is clearly perceived all over creation, whether you live in Minneapolis, or Jakarta, or Papua. In our everyday lives, we live as if God exists, but in our heads, we deny it. Why? Because the second we acknowledge that the concept of an ultimately powerful, personal, moral creator exists, we must then honor him as that. We must then give thanks to him. And in verse 21, that's exactly what we don't want to do, Paul says. We don't want to give him honor. We don't want to give him thanks. Why? Because we have bad manners? No, because we don't trust him. Most parents at one point or another have most likely instructed children uh, their children to not take money from anyone that they don't trust, right? Why is that? Well, because when you take money from someone you don't trust, you owe them. And when you owe someone, they have power over you. And if you don't know that person, it's kind of scary if you, know, if you don't know you can trust them. So don't owe 
anyone you don't trust. That's exactly what's going on here. Paul is saying we suppress the plain knowledge of God because we don't want to admit that we owe him for our existence. We don't want to thank him because we don't want to give him power over us. Why? Because we don't really trust him. So what do we do? Although it's plain that he exists, we keep him submerged underwater. We pretend like he's not there. It's a trust issue. Now, Paul moves on. What we don't realize is that when, if you want to keep a ball suppressed or submerged underwater, you know what you got to do? You have to place something else on top of it. That's exactly what Paul claims we do in verse 23. We continue to submerge our knowledge of God. We, we keep him down. How? Look at verse 23. By exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. When we elevate something, not God, to God's status, to ultimate status. In order to keep God suppressed underwater, that's what we end up doing, Paul says, we um, have to put things like money and career and education and our children's success and our family status and sex into ultimate positions in our lives. That's the only way we can keep them down. And, and when we do that, we elevate the creature above the creator. That's what Paul's trying to get at here in verse 23. And you know which creature we end up elevating more than often not? Ourselves. And this, I believe, Paul claims, is the natural path towards sexual promiscuity. The elevation of self leads to sexual promiscuity. How so? What could be the connection? Well, let's go to our second point. We all need forgiveness because we're guilty of elevating sexual identity. Paul continues in verse 24, again says, therefore, you see that there's a connecting phrase again with this thought, with the previous thought, okay? Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. So the first thing I want to point out is the natural logical connection between the previous thought we just studied and this thought. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. In other words, Paul is saying, because we keep suppressing the plain knowledge of God by elevating something else, more often than not ourselves, on top of him, therefore, because of that, God gave us up into the lust of our hearts. The picture here is God saying, okay, you want to keep me suppressed by elevating yourself on top of me? Go ahead. Go ahead. If you have kids, you know when they jump and down, up and down the couch or when they jump up and down the bed, right? And you don't want them to fall down. You don't want them to get hurt. And you, you, you say, stop, stop doing that. You're going to get hurt. But then they keep doing it. They keep ignoring you. They keep suppressing your voice. They keep pretending like you're not there. Eventually, what do you say? You say, all right, go ahead. Keep doing that. Let's, let's see what happens. And hopefully, you know, they would fall and, and repent and not do it again before they hurt themselves further. This is what God is described to be doing here. You, you want to elevate yourself on top of me? Okay, then, go ahead. Let's see where this takes you. That's what it means by him giving us over to our own desires. And where does it take us? Verse 24 says, We end up dishonoring our bodies amongst ourselves. Dishonoring our bodies here has sexual connotations. But why? Why is that the logical connection? Why is that the natural result? What does self-elevation have to do with our sexuality? Well, here's what I want to propose. When we take God out of the picture, when we keep God suppressed underwater by elevating me above God, 
if in my mind God no longer exists, what then is left? What makes me most me? If God isn't in the picture, what is then most intrinsic to my identity? What's something about you that no other human being gave you, nor can any other human being take away? It's not our money that comes and goes. It's not our career that comes and goes. It's not our social circle that, that comes and goes. Those things aren't intrinsic to me. But what's the one thing I was born with and can't be changed? It's my sexuality. Now, I do realize that that is a sensitive issue. Um, so I just want to offer to you that this is not the thoughts just coming from a subjective uh, Christian worldview, okay? Um, the reality that we can't change our sexuality is, I think, um, scientifically credible claim to make. Let me just read to you a quote from Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray is an atheist scholar, author, journalist, has degrees from Eton College uh, and Oxford, who is also openly gay. He claims, and I quote that, I quote, um, people now are being instructed to tell the lie that there is no difference between men and women and that we can migrate between the sexes. This is coming from an atheist scholar. Uh, Paula Johnson, a cardiologist, she was the executive director of uh, Connors Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology. Uh, she was the chief of Women's Health Division at Harvard Teaching Hospital. and She's currently president of Wellesley College. Uh, she says, and I quote, the idea that we can change sex is a parody of scientific reality. Every cell has a sex, so that men and women are profoundly different in physiology. This even has significant impact on how they develop diseases and how they should be treated. Now, we may ask, uh, what about babies that are born without clear gender parts? Which does happen. I in rare occasions, in about one out of 5,000 babies, this does occur. But what does that mean? Does that mean that they have no sexuality? They're born without a sex? Not quite. Why? Because gender is not identified just by your external body parts. Gender is primarily identified through your chromosomal variation. On a cellular level, females have XX chromosomes and males will have XY chromosomes. Let, let me read one more quote from an author named Sharon James history grad from Cambridge, doctorate from University of Wales, amongst other uh, accomplishments. She, she said in her book called Gender Identity, it is impossible to change sex. You can only change appearance. Our birth sex cannot be changed. The XX or XY chromosomal pattern is set at conception. These chromosomes are found in nearly every cell of the body. A DNA test will always reveal who you truly are. Nothing can change our fundamental genetic makeup. In other words, blood work blood work will reveal one's gender as dr paula johnson also said that sex is embedded in every cell of our body you can change your bank accounts you can change your jobs you can change your group of friends those things are not intrinsic to you but your sex is and this is not just some freudian theory out there at least i don't think i think it's scriptural as well when god first created human beings what was the first description as to how God described them, who, of who they are. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That's the primary thing about, about their identity when they were created. And I realize that what I'm saying here is opening up a lot of questions, and I wish I could address all of them uh, right here in the sermon, but I don't have enough time. We do have a Q&A session later today at 3. Please join uh, us there if you do have questions about this. 
But I think uh, uh, this is something that that is is credible uh, to be said, not only from scripture but also from scientific research. Okay, so back to our passage. When we keep God submerged under water by putting me above him, naturally, the thing that is most intrinsic to me is the thing that I will end up elevating above God. It's, it's a thing that I'll end up making ultimate. What is that thing that is most intrinsic to me, as we just talked about? It's my sexuality. Promiscuous sexual activity is the natural result of elevating me above God. I end up living my life pursuing the gratifications of my sexual passions in whatever way I want. That's where the connection lies. And by the way, look at verse 26. Here, Paul has not yet talking about homosexuality yet. Verse 26 is not yet referring specifically to same-sex attraction or to SSA, but to any kind of sexual promiscuity done outside of the context of marriage. Anywhere from porn uh, to, to impure thoughts to sex before marriage, Heterosexual Christians are not exempt from this, in other words. And it, it's so easy. We look at this passage, and those who uh, are not uh, same-sex attracted feel a pride. They shouldn't. You shouldn't. This is rebuking any kind of uh, sexual promiscuity. It's interesting statistic in, in the U.S. One year is recorded that in a particular city, the rate of pornography use in, in hotels in this city almost always doubles whenever pastor conferences happen. Let that sink in for a second. This truth implicates everyone. You're not excused from sexual promiscuity just because you're heterosexual. However, yes, Paul does continue to point out same-sex attraction, uh, same attraction specifically in verses 26 to 27 as a form of sexual promiscuity. Now, some people say uh, that Paul here is not referring to homosexuality in itself, but just the promiscuous kind of homosexual activity that existed in the culture back then. Because it's true that back then in, in the Greco-Roman culture, it's not uncommon for men in authority, like male employers or male governors or male university professors even, to force other men who are below them in the social status, uh, like their slaves or their students, to have sex with them. Uh, outside of a long-term mutual consent kind of relationship. It's kind of like abusive relationship. And some claim, Paul isn't referring to all kinds of homosexual practices here. The one he's rebuking here is just the abusive, non-mutual kind of homosexual practices that we see in the particular culture back then. But it's kind of hard to justify that from this passage, I think, for two reasons. First, notice, when Paul first addresses same-sex attraction in verse 26, he didn't start with male same-sex practices, he started with female same-sex practices. And that's intentional. Why? Because female same-sex practices back then would not generally include the abusive kind of social power kind of dynamic uh, that you see with male same-sex practices back then. Female same-sex practices would more often than not back then be by a mutual consent. But yet, Paul here addresses female same-sex practices first. Why? to emphasize that even if it occurs in a context that is non-abusive and mutual consent, it is still not justifiable. And the second reason of why uh, I think that is, look at verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. And, and the men here described as having what? Consuming passions. In other words, they had true, internal, authentic, internal love that is not forced, that is not coerced, they were themselves confusion, uh, uh, 
consumed internally for one another, implying mutual consent. See, this isn't the kind of same-sex practices that is abusive or coercive, but one that is birthed out of uh, an internal true desire and, and love for one another. But even then, Paul doesn't affirm this as justifiable. Paul includes that here in, in, in his list. And it's hard to dispute that, that textually, at least, the sexual promiscuity Paul is referring to here is only the abusive kind of uh, same-sex uh, uh, practices. It seems clear that sexual promiscuity which is a result of the elevating of self, is seen by our desire to commit heter heterosexual practices done outside of marriage in any kind and same-sex practices of any kind. Again, if, if there's questions about this and you want to dialogue more about this, I would, I would more than love uh, converse with you uh, at our session at, at three. But what, what this passage does here is that it includes almost everyone, if not everyone, as guilty of self-elevation. Who here has not fallen into, into what Paul just talked about, uh, sexual promiscuity of any kind? Now, some of us, I think, might hear that and think, that's my punishment. I suppress God and I elevate myself and, and he punishes me by handing me over to a life of sexual promiscuity. That, that doesn't sound too bad. Uh, some of us might think that. Well, that's only because we haven't fallen off the couch yet. What many of us don't realize is that the elevation of our sexuality or the elevation of, of self is the root cause for a lot of sadness and depression that we experience today. Sam Albury, a British full-time Christian minister and author who also struggles with same-sex attraction, living a celibate life, currently in his 40s, never been married, said something in an interview that I thought was really profound. He said, if your, sexuality if your sexuality defines you, if that is who you are at the core of your being, if that is you at your most you, then it is implied that sexual and romantic fulfillment becomes everything. If your sexuality is you at your most you, then being sexually and romantically fulfilled becomes intrinsic to being a complete human being. And that is tragic. But that's what the world says. That means the world ends up saying, in effect, that our lives without sexual and romantic satisfaction is not a life worth living. The church doesn't say that, I hope. The scriptures don't say that. But the cultural does. And I want to suggest humbly that because of that, the world has more blood on its hands these days, I think, than the church does. The worldview that elevates sexuality as primary identity, as the end-all be-all, in effect also says that romantic and sexual fulfillment is the end-all be-all. And if you don't have that, you're subhuman. You know how many people have been led to severe depression and even suicide because of that worldview? Rachel Gilson, a, a Christian, also uh, grew up struggling with same-sex attraction, said that this worldview will end up making you miserable in your singleness because you're going to treat singleness as JV or as low-level. When actually, I think, in the New Testament, sing singleness is pretty clearly varsity or top-level. Jesus was single and celibate. Are we to call him incomplete? Don't you see the elevation of ourselves and therefore our sexuality to ultimate status? It, it doesn't bring joy. It doesn't. It's the reason why some women in China and even in Indonesia who are single and over 30 are called shengnu, which means leftovers. Why? Because they have not yet fulfilled the purpose of their existence, which is to find romantic and sexual fulfillment? 
It's the reason why many same-sex attracted people are made to believe that their joy is capped and limited, dependent upon only whether they find a partner. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the opposite. They say that they have access to the fountain of joy and is as needy of it as a heterosexual man or woman. It's the reason why how good the sex is become one of the main categories of whom we choose to marry. Starting off the marriage with a consumeristic mindset and is the reason of why so many marriages end up failing. It's the reason why people are considered to be more valuable when they are more physically and sexually attractive and are treated as less when they are considered not to be. It's the reason why we're all addicted to body image that's led us to all kinds of health issues like anorexia and bulimia. It's, it's the reason why when you look at the mirror and the weighing scale, sometimes it gives you a kind of sadness that you can't handle and has led to many depressions and tears. That's what happens when we elevate ourselves and therefore our sexuality to ultimate status. That's what it leads to. Don't you see? Friends, we fell off the couch ages ago. Will we come back? What is it going to take for us to begin to listen? And I hope we will before we spiral down even further, which is what verses 29 to 30 is about. We're all guilty of continual self prioritization. <laughs> so Paul continues in, in this rebuke, which is hard to, to sit through, I know. And Paul continues the same logical pattern in verse 28. He says, because we don't see fit to acknowledge God, see, um, we, because we persist to suppress the plain knowledge of God by elevating me above him, God then, verse 28, also continues, again, the same phrase, to give us up to this worldview of self-elevation. And, and notice the list of sins described in verse 29 to 31 is not random. They're all connected to what happens when we make ourselves ultimate or when we make ourselves priority over everything else, okay? Think about it. What is covetousness? Is that not the elevation of our self-desire over other people's possessions? What is maliciousness or ruthlessness? Is it not the prioritizing of self-expression over other people's good? What is envy? Envy is a desiring to attain for ourselves someone else's blessings. What is gossip and slander? It's the elevation of our personal satisfaction over other people's reputation. What is being haughty or being boastful? It's the elevation of our own ego over other people's accomplishments. And what is murder? If not the elevation of self-interest over other people's very existence. Every single one of those things is rooted in self-ism. See, now here we're shown just who all has fallen into self-ism. And it's not just those who are sexually promiscuous. It's everyone who's done any of the above. It's all of us. You know what studying this passage as a whole does? If you came to this passage looking for ammunition uh, to attack a particular group of people, when you study it properly, you'll instead realize that you've been under the gun the whole time as well. And you need forgiveness just as much as they do. So, okay, Paul, we, we get the problem. You've, you've made that clear. What's the solution? What's going to make us stop elevating our weight of self on top of God and suppress him? Well, well Paul gives us a stark warning in verse 32. He says, if you keep persisting in selfism, you're going to die. And not just 
a physical death, but a kind of death that is the result of and linked to the wrath of God, as mentioned in verse 18. And this is exactly, <laughs> we think, why we suppress God in the first place. Because that's terrifying. We're scared. Deep inside, we all know this to be true. If we acknowledge that he exists, we're done for. It's terrifying. How can I admit that he exists when doing so, like Paul said, will only prove me guilty? Remember Paul said in verse 21, it's a trust issue. How can you trust a God who you know deep inside will hold you accountable for your sins? And look, it's at this point here that we got to go back to Paul's whole reason why he wrote this part of Romans in the first place. Remember, what was his motivation? He wanted to write this part of Romans to convince us that we need forgiveness, to convince us that we all have a debt that we owe. And who's going to pay it? Who's going to pay it? This is what is radical about Christianity. It claims that God himself will. How? How will he do this? By letting us throw our weight on top of him until he suffocated to death on a cross. What is the gospel? What is the good news? It's that God allowed us to drown him under the weight of our selfism so that he may pay for our guilt. What is the gospel? It is God descending to the grave for us because we can't help but elevate ourselves every day. That list you see in verse 29 to 31, that's not just a list of things that we do to other people. That's a list of things that we did to Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full weight of our unrighteousness, of our evil, of our covetousness, of our malice, of our envy, of our gossips, of our slander, of our hate, of our boastfulness, of our evil, of our heartlessness, of our ruthlessness, and, oh yes, of our murderous intent. And he drowned in it so that you may breathe. Until you see this powerful and transcendent creator willingly suffocating on a cross for you, you will never trust him to run your life. And you will always be suspicious of him. And you'll never let him out of the water. And you'll never be clean. And the worldview of selfism, with all its sinister and poisonous implications, will continue to dictate your life. I, I hear a lot of people say at this point, Tazar, I know that I'm guilty. I, I don't struggle with a heightened view of, of selfism. I know I'm guilty. I, I view, have a low view of self, right? The reason why I don't let God out of the water and acknowledge him into my heart is because I don't feel like I deserve it. If that's you, I want to propose to you that that still is a form of selfism. You're elevating your shame above God's love. Who would you rather define you? Will you come? If today you hear his call, do not harden your heart. Will you take yourself off of him? Acknowledge him. Thank him. If you do so, you know what you'll find? 
you'll find a trustworthy God who drowned under the weight of your sin so that you may live. His intentions are good. His instructions are trustworthy. And his kingship is safe. It's safe. It may not feel like it at times. Even after you receive him, he may instruct you to obey him in ways that require big sacrifices. And you may not understand it fully this side of eternity. But remember the cross. His intentions are good. His instructions are trustworthy and his kingship is safe. You are not too far. So come to him as you are. Come back. Take yourself off of him. Let him out. And find in him life everlasting. I pray that you would. Father, we come to you acknowledging the many ways, even as Christians, in which we still suppress the knowledge of you. Deny that you're here, which leads us to all kinds of sins. And I beg you that you will have the mercy we don't deserve bestowed upon us so that we would be cleansed from what we deserve and that we would not die the death that is meant for us, but rather acknowledge and receive the death that you died so that we may live. Father, if anyone was hurt from this passage, I pray that you would clarify to them uh, your word and your intentions. And I pray that you would remove me from the equation and I pray that whatever wrestling you will to do with them will lead to a kind of realization of a love that they never would have imagined before. And I pray that you would remind all of us of the poison and sinister implications of selfism and that you would bring us to our knees and that we would put you in the rightful throne in which you deserve, as King, as Lord, and as our Savior. Help us, Father, for all are unrighteous and all are in need of the gospel Paul proclaimed in verses 16 to 17. We all need your righteousness, imputed, given to us through your death on that cross. Impress these truths in such a way to people's hearts beyond the capability of my words. Speak to them through your spirit and create for yourselves children, worshipers. Um, create for yourself clean uh, people for your glory and for the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.